Well, good morning. Glad you guys are here. Glad that you're joining us online. For those of you who join us online, we're glad that you have taken some time out of your day uh, to worship with us, to worship in song, to worship through communion, and at this point in time, to worship through the study of God's Word. And we are going to be in Matthew 15. So if you have a Bible, you can follow along. Matthew 15. If you don't, don't worry about it. Everything we're going to go over is going to be right here on the screen for you to follow along with us as well. Uh, I do want to say, having just uh, showed the Rooted video, that Rooted starts, I believe it's March 17th, a Wednesday night, we'll be doing Rooted. Um, it's 10 weeks long, which sounds like a big commitment, but you'll be so glad you did. And there's really no secret sauce to Rooted. It's, it's just doing life together. And, um, uh, and we do life together, and we do what Jesus tells us to do, and then we're shocked and surprised when God shows up in a miraculous and amazing ways. And, and um, I think that you'd be very glad that you did. The, the easiest way to get registered is to text Monmouth, as just one word, to 97,000. And it'll pop up with a little menu, and you can register for Rooted uh, through that way. You'll be glad that you did. So I, I want to I begin today. Um, uh, it's going to be a little heavy. I want to I ask you this question. I want you to remember with me. The feelings and the moment and the thoughts of the last time that you had to watch someone you loved go through pain. Physical pain and discomfort. Maybe, maybe it was someone that you loved that was fighting cancer and, and they would talk about how just their bones ached as they fought cancer. Maybe it was a child and, and uh, the, 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 the panic and the fear in their eyes as they're throwing up and the desperation that you felt and the panic that you felt. Maybe it was a parent that you dearly loved that you watched die. Today we're going to be introduced to a woman. We don't even know her name. Matthew just calls her the Canaanite woman. We're being introduced to a woman who knew pain she knew what it was to watch someone she loved suffer in, in, in inexplainable ways. She comes to Jesus, we see in Matthew 15, verse 21. She comes to Jesus um, on behalf of her daughter. Her, her daughter, it says this, Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the region of Tyre and Sidon, and a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely demon-possessed. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. So here's what's going on. Uh, this phrase here, demon-possessed, it's actually a, a unique phrase. This is the only time in the New Testament that this phrase is used. Now, if you've read your Bible before, you might see the Bible talk about demon possession in other spots, but Matthew uses something different in this spot. And uh, one theologian said it this way. He said that this could be best translated as the demon rode her with torment. You know, Matthew's trying to get us to feel something. He's trying to get us to feel the anguish and the pain of this mother who's watching her daughter in torment. In fact, even this word here, severely, it's a fine translation, but if we were just to take that word and pull it out of context and just literally translate it in the Greek, it literally means to dangerously suffer. So for a moment, think with me, feel with me, imagine with me the time when you've watched someone you love dearly dangerously 
suffer. Can you imagine the the mother as she just watched her daughter writhing in pain? Uh, Demon possession, we don't know a lot about what this means, but what we do know is that that the mother knew that there was something going on in her daughter that she couldn't fix and she didn't understand. So she comes to Jesus in pain and torment. Now, like I said, we don't know the name of this woman. Matthew never gives it to us. There's no gospel account that gives us the name of this woman. Um, But we know some things about her that'll help set the scene for us. The first is, you can see here, right? She's a woman. She's a woman, right? Now, that might not seem like a significant detail to us because we live in the 21st century west. And our view on women is significantly different than it was 2,000 years ago in the ancient Near East. And, and, and we can say this, that, that in the ancient Near East 2,000 years ago, that, that um, uh, Jewish, Jewish view on women was incredibly progressive for their day, but even a Jewish view of women 2,000 years ago would make our skin crawl in today's culture and society. Uh, Women were not allowed to be educated. Women couldn't own property. Women had little to no input, discussion, or decision-making in their own autonomy. Uh, One one commentator said that um, the life of a woman was not that different than a goat, that her job was to, to accomplish a service and to bear kids, that that's what she was. That was it. She was a woman. But more than that, she was a Canaanite woman. Now, here's the crazy thing, because that doesn't, that doesn't make your skin crawl, but it would have made Matthew's audience skin crawl. Because um, Canaanites, obviously, they come from the land of Canaan, and if you've read a bunch of the Bible, you might come across that phrase. The land of Canaan also has a, another name that is often called in Scripture. It's often called the promised land, or Israel, You see, the Canaanite people were the people that lived in the promised land before the Jews came and occupied that land. They were the people that God had told them to drive out of the land. They were the people who lived right on their border, but they were the historic sworn enemies of the Jewish people. Now, we've talked about before that Matthew is a Jew writing to a bunch of Jews. He lives in a time and place. And when Matthew's audience would have read this Canaanite woman, no matter the atrocity she's experiencing, there would be little to no sympathy for her. But it's worse than that. It's worse than that. It says that she's from the region of Tyre and Sidon. You see this Jesus was doing the region of Tyre and Sidon. That's where he finds her, in Tyre and Sidon. Now, uh, one uh, commentator said this, that um, this was basically just code word for pagan world which maybe sounds like a really weird new invention of a theme park, Pagan World. I don't know what you'd do at Pagan World, but you'd do pagan things. But for them, it was an outright, what we would call outright racist statement. They were the people who lived in a region who worshiped idols and demons in direct opposition to Yahweh, the God of Israel. See, what Matthew's presenting us here with this woman that's coming, this woman who feels such deep anguish and pain for her daughter, is a woman that no, none of Matthew's readers would have sympathy for. There's nothing in the telling of this woman that would engender some compassion that would be like, oh man, you see this woman, like, oh man, I wish God would do something for her. 
In fact, if anything, a reader in Jesus' day probably would have been approached with this woman and would have thought, she deserves whatever she's getting. But maybe, but maybe, but maybe she comes on behalf of someone, right? Maybe there's nothing um, uh, compassion building about who she is, but maybe she comes on behalf of someone that would stir compassion in, in Matthew's audience. Well, the truth is, she comes on behalf of her daughter. Now, if there was anybody in Jesus' day that people cared less about than women, it was only daughters, uh, there, there was a practice in the Roman Empire that was completely legal. It was called exposure. Now, in, in exposure, the way the law was written is that it would say that if the child is still dependent upon the mother, which was a very vague statement that from generations changed and from regions changed, but if the child was still dependent upon the mother, you could take a child and you could take them out in the wilderness or in the forest and leave them to starve to death or to be eaten by wild animals and there would be no legal recourse. You could abandon your child completely legally. Josephus is a Jewish historian, and this practice was repulsive to the Jewish people. Just made their skin crawl that it happened anywhere. And Josephus, um, shortly after the time of Jesus, he wrote, and, and listen what he says about this, this practice of exposure. This is important about her coming on behalf of her daughter. Says this, exposure was generally reserved for children with severe deformities, little hope of survival, or those cursed to be born a woman. Those cursed to be born a woman. So what Matthew's presenting us here is a woman that nobody cared about, coming on behalf of a daughter that people cared about even less. But it's worse than that. Look at this last phrase. It says here that she was severely demon-possessed. Well, you remember what the land of Tyre and Sidon was. It was the land of pagan world. It was the land of demon worship. It was the land of idolatry. And so in Jesus' day, if, if, if a reader was to read this, you know what they would think? They'd think, well, you know what? She's getting exactly what she deserves. You play with fire, you're gonna get burned. You mess with demons and you mess with idols, you're gonna get whatever you deserve. And if you've been worshiping and engaging in pagan practices and all of a sudden your child gets demon-possessed, I don't know what to tell you, you shouldn't have been playing with demons. There's, there's nothing in this woman that should engender any sort of compassion by Matthew's audience. And in fact, there's really nothing about this story or this woman that should make it into scripture if it was just from Matthew's perspective. She is an enemy of Matthew's people. She's from a land that stands contrary to the God he worships, coming on behalf of a daughter that nobody cared about with the possession of a demon that she was playing with. The tension in this story, like Matthew would have felt the awkwardness and the tension. It's like it's palatable in this moment, but it gets worse because she won't leave. Not only is she someone that nobody cares about, but she won't leave. Look, look at what it says in Matthew 15, verse 23. It says this, but he being Jesus didn't answer her with even a word, and his disciples came up and urged him saying, send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. She keeps shouting at us, make her go away, make her leave. She keeps shouting. This, this word here, shouting, um, when, when translate literally, it, it means uh, shrieking. 
It's not like, hey, Jim, how you doing? It, 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 it's a kind of pain that like can't be articulated, can only be felt. It, it, shrieking, it, it's, it's, it's like what um, witnesses accounted and told stories of, survivors told stories of in the Holocaust. It's what survivors talked about that they heard and haunted their memories, those who survived the Titanic as the ship sunk beneath the Atlantic and the shrieks of people drowning and dying. It's a kind of shrieking that can only be felt like deep in here, deep somewhere in here. And, and here's the thing, I want you to notice this is really important. Jesus is not bothered by her shrieking. The disciples are. You see, here, here's the thing. Somewhere along the way, most of us either explicitly or implicitly have gotten the idea that God is bothered or nuisanced by our honest pain. Somewhere along the way, we've been told or caught or understood that we shouldn't inconvenience God with, that we might be assaulting his goodness, that we might not really believe that he's good and kind if we shrieked with the kind of pain we feel deep in our soul. But it is not Jesus who's bothered. It's the disciples. And I want you to know, just an important little point here as we go through this, that God is big enough to handle your honest pain. In fact, uh, the scriptures tells us that in part of scripture that there's a kind of pain that you can feel so deeply that you can't find words to articulate the pain that you feel inside and that the spirit, that God himself groans on our behalf, that he shrieks with us in agony and pain. This is the God we worship, not a God who's bothered or inconvenienced by your honest pain, but a God who welcomes it who invites his children to come with mourning and pain and ache of this broken world. But there's something else that I want you to see. It's the order of events. It might not sound, seem very significant to you, but there's something really massively important going on in the story that we would miss if we just like read through too quickly. It's, look back at verse 21. Look at verse 21 to, to see the order of events. So it says this, Jesus went away from there. Okay, so Jesus is um, in, near the Sea of Galilee. He's walked on water. He's fed the 5,000. He's going to, after this, go back towards the Sea of Galilee. He's gonna feed 4,000 people. He's critiqued the religious leaders. He's done all this kind of stuff around the Sea of Galilee, which is where most of his ministry was. And then he leaves and he goes here. He withdrew into the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, if you looked at the full story, if you looked at verse 29, I don't have it up here, but if you've got a Bible open, you can look at verse 29. Verse 29, the first thing it's going to say is it's going to say something like this. He departed from there. Hey, don't miss this. Jesus leaves the region of his ministry. He leaves the place of his people for one conversation, for one woman, for one daughter. Jesus is on a mission. There's nothing accidental about what Jesus is doing. There's nothing else recorded that Jesus does in this place. Let me show you a map to show you how significant what's going on here is. Um, look at this map, okay? Um, this is Jerusalem down here. I don't know how well you can see if you're joining us online, but, but you can see in general. This is Jerusalem down here. 
Okay, here's Bethlehem, that's where Jesus was born. Nazareth is right up here, that's where Jesus grew up. Um, Here's Tiberius, it's talked about in scripture. Um, Capernaum, he he does a lot of his ministry up here. This is the Sea of Galilee right here. That's, That's where he walks on water and does all that kind of stuff. Everything that's a color is at some point in some way, except for the Decapolis, that's a different thing. All of these colors are um, some part of what is historically the land of Israel, the people, the land of the Jews, um, the promised land, all this here. Now, now look right here. This is Tyre and Sidon. Jesus leaves his ministry, and if you look at the text, he leaves a ministry of thousands of people chasing him around, of doing miraculous things. He leaves the land of his people, his country, to go find one woman. It is likely the furthest recording we have of Jesus ever going away from Jerusalem. He's going to eventually head this way to the cross, but before he does, he goes this way to go find one woman for one daughter. Hear this. This is the gospel we celebrate. This is the good news that we rejoice over. That God was when Scripture says this, it says that he emptied himself. Not seeing uh, equality with God, something to be grasped. He emptied himself. He left his rightful place, his rightful throne in heaven, where Scripture tells us that all things were created in him and through him and for him. That he held everything together and that every ounce of praise is due him. He left that place. He left his land to come after a woman that nobody else cared about. The good news of the gospel is that God has left his place in heaven to come after me, to come after you. He's left his rightful throne to come after us, even when we believe nobody else cares. Jesus is on a mission here, and he's on a mission in your life. He's after you. He's chasing after you. He has left his place in heaven to come after you. This is the good news of the gospel that we rejoice and celebrate over. Luke 19 says it this way. Luke 19 verse 10, it says, the son of man came to seek, to hunt after, to chase after, to find and save the lost, to save you and me. See, what we see in the picture of this Canaanite woman is a person that had no standing, no position, that nobody should have cared about, and yet the God of the universe saw her and knew her and chased after her. And the same is true of you, and the same is true of me. That the God of the universe has left his place in heaven to come after us. But not just that. Not just that, but not only does he take a woman that nobody cares about, that, nobody, that has no social standing, advocating for a daughter that nobody cared about, who, who most people would have imagined got what she deserved. Not only that, but he takes that woman and then he raises her up and he says, he says look, this is what you should look like. Here's what I mean. Um, Look at what he says to the woman in Matthew 15, verse 28. This is the very end of it. Matthew 15, verse 28, he says, Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. 
<laughs> Here's the crazy thing. Um, five times in, in the book of Matthew uh, alone, Jesus says to the disciples, you of little faith. Now, here's what's terrifying and needs to be a little bit of a sober moment for all of us, to a little self-reflection. What that means is that you can sell everything and follow Jesus for years and still have little faith. There are two times in the book of Matthew that Jesus says, you have great faith. The Greek word here um, is where we get the word mega. So like Jesus is actually literally saying to her, you have mega faith. There's two times he says that, and both times they're to the wrong people by our standards. Both times there are people who are outside. There are people that nobody expected. They're not the disciples. They're not the religious leaders. There are people like this Canaanite woman that nobody cared about. You have great faith. So the question I want to look at before we finish up today is what does it look like to have great faith? What does it look like to have great faith? And the first thing that looks like to have mega great faith is that this woman was persistent. She didn't quit. Jesus tells a parable. He tells a story about uh, uh, someone kind of a, kind of story about a guy who needs bread and for some reason he goes to this guy's house in the middle of the night to go get bread and he's pounding on the guy's door and he's like, hey, come to the door, I need bread, come to the door, I need bread. Which, by the way, if you come to my door in the middle of the night and someone's not dead, there will be someone dead on my front porch, okay? But he's pounding on the door, I need bread, I need bread. And then look at what Jesus says happens in this parable. He's, t- he's talking about a relationship with, with God. Luke 11, verse eight, it says this. He may not get up, being the friend who's asleep, and give you the bread just because you're his friend, which right, is to say, the extent of his friendship, my friendship with you ends at 10 p.m., okay? We're not friends from 10 p.m. until 6 a.m. Don't call me, don't show up to my house, okay? That's what he means. But he says this, but he will get up and give you as much as you need simply, look at this, look at this, look at this. This is the model Jesus is trying to teach us. This is what we see in this woman, simply because you are not ashamed to keep on asking. What if, what if our faith looked like this woman and what if instead of the disciples, what if our faith and our prayers and our shrieking and our cries before Jesus of Jesus, you need to do something, you need to do, what if, what if, what if instead of annoying the disciples, what if we had such faith that we annoyed the angels in heaven? What if the angels in heaven were like, come on, Jesus, I'm tired of hearing about it. You gotta do something for them. See, this is the example we see in this woman. Jesus says, so I tell you to ask and you will receive, search and you will find, knock and the door will be open for you. But see, here's the problem for a lot of us is we've tried praying and we've tried, sometimes in great pain and agony, we've tried praying and we've tried having faith. God, you can do something, you can do something. And then he, he doesn't, or at least he doesn't do it the way that we think he should. We don't see what we think that we should see from our prayers. And, and, and so then we just kind of go, oh, maybe it was too much to ask. Maybe he can't quite do that much. And, and so next time we pray a little bit smaller prayer and a little bit safer prayer, and, and then we don't see what we think we should see God doing. We don't see him respond the way. And then eventually, we eventually, our prayer life just turns into, our faith just turns into vague requests for protection and provision. But Jesus is calling us to have a great faith 
that we are unashamed to keep on asking. You see, this is, this is what it, the woman came to Jesus desperate, believing that he could and he would. And she kept asking until he did. We want to be a church. We want to be a church here. We want to be a people who have that kind of faith. We have written on a wall out in our lobby that we want to be uh, big, we want to be faith-filled, big-thinking, bet-the-farm risk-takers, that God is not honored in our small prayers or safe living. See, this woman wouldn't quit. But not only that, her prayer was big, big and audacious and bold <laughs> and unrealistic. Unrealistic. Point number two to having big faith is that she believed that she was the exception. You see, it didn't stop her. She, she's from the pagan land. She's never met Jesus. She's never seen Jesus heal anybody. She doesn't know stories of like family members that got healed, that God did miraculous things in their family. And then she's like, well, I mean, he did it for my Uncle Billy. I mean, I'm sure he'll do it for me. She didn't know any of that. In fact, every single argument she could have thought of would have argued against her going to Jesus. She'd never seen him do anything. She didn't know him. He wasn't even her Messiah. He was the Jewish Messiah from a different land, from her enemies. And yet, there was something in her that believed that even if he hadn't done it for anybody else, that she'd be the exception, that he'd do it for her, that he'd do it for her, that she was the exception. You see, Scripture tells us this way. It says, um, that he can do more than we can ever ask or even imagine. Here's the crazy thing about that passage. Okay, that doesn't seem very shocking to you. It is shocking to me because here's what I know about my mind. I can imagine a lot. Like, like I can imagine really big things. I can imagine some really crazy things that God could do. The scripture says that he can do more than we can ask or imagine often. We allow our prayers and our faith to be small because we've never seen it done before. Because it wouldn't make sense for it to happen here. Because it wouldn't make sense for you to do it in my life. Because you've never done it in my family before. Because my fa if you look at my family, right? We come up with all these excuses. But she believed, even though she'd never seen it before, that she'd be the exception. That God would do it for her. He didn't have to do it for anybody else. That he'd do it for her. So we want to be a people of mega faith. A people who believe that just because God's never done it before, just because God's never done it here before, just because God's never done it with anybody that I know, that God is the God of the impossible, that God is the God who parts the Red Sea, who makes food in the wilderness, who does the unimaginable and miraculous things. I, um, I've been reading a lot, and, and as you know, a lot of things have happened in this uh, COVID year that we've had, and there have been a lot of articles and conversations about, like, what's going on in the church world, and um, Barna, which is this kind of world-class research group, they had this phrase early, and uh, one of the things they said was that um, COVID was accelerating the de-church in America, and th there's some really important um, words in that statement, but one of them is that, is that Barna was arguing that COVID didn't create anything, right? COVID didn't create anything new. Uh, just a little personal reflection. COVID probably didn't create anything new in you. It just accelerated and magnified what was already in you, right? And so it did the same in the church. The church was already um, 
uh, de-churching. Right? America was already de-churching, and COVID accelerated that. And there's a lot of stats about what the future of America is going to look like, and what the state of the church in America is going to look, all that kind of stuff. Here, here's the deal. Um, I'm praying big prayers. There's no reason, there's no re- there is no reason that anybody could reasonably argue that God should do anything here. Not a one, not a one. If you were to write a list of responsible, reasonable, smart places that God should invest his energy in starting a move of God and restoring and transforming a broken world, uh, Monmouth, Independence, Polk County would not end up on the top thousand list. I'm praying big prayers. I'm praying that God would do something here just because I've never seen it, just because we've never seen it, just because he's never done it before, that God would do something here that historians would write about, that we would be the kindling of a move of God. Why? Just because he hadn't done it somewhere else, that we would be the exception, that God would move in us. And I don't know what the prayer is for you. I don't know what the prayer is for you. The mega faith prayer, the exception, the persistent prayer, maybe Maybe for you, it's a, it's a marriage. It's a marriage that seems unsavable. And you're going to pray every single day, God, I know I've never seen you do it. I've never seen you do it in anybody in my family, but I believe you can save this broken marriage. Maybe it's in a past that just seems to continue to haunt you, that seems unforgivable. God, I believe that you can do it. I haven't seen it in anybody else. I haven't seen it in anybody in my family, but I believe that you can break this generational curse that I've seen over and over and over in my family. Maybe it's a hurt that just seems unhealable, that just seems so deep down that you'd say to me, Sean, you can't even understand the pain that I feel. And I'd say, I I can't. But I bet a Canaanite woman shrieking to Jesus could. And maybe it's a pain, a hurt that seems unhealable. Maybe it's an addiction that feels unbreakable. In the silent, dark places, there's something that's so bound up your soul and it seems like you'll never find freedom from it. But we, are the God, we worship the God who does the unexpected, the unbelievable, the more than imaginable. So what is it for you? Maybe for you, maybe it's just this, maybe your big faith prayer is, is just this, that, that Jesus cares and he came after you. And maybe the prayer that you need to give today is, is a prayer that believes that God can redeem and save even you. What is it? What is it? Because we worship and serve a God who is not honored in our small, safe prayers, but our big, bold, messy faith, like a Canaanite woman.